Well, I invite you to take your book and turn with me to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 20. I will never forget the first item that I personally put together from Ikea. It was a glorious day for me. My wife and I had just gotten married. We were stocking our apartment with things. It was an espresso-colored bookcase. I don't remember the name (laughs) that it had. Something like Werder Wiesterfischtin, something like that. (laughs) Some Scandinavian name. I was so excited to take the bookcase out of the box, put it together, and fit it perfectly in our apartment. We had measured. It was great. And I had heard all of the horror stories of trying to assemble furniture from Ikea. And I thought, I can overcome this. I can do this. I can set this up. I looked at the directions. I read them twice through. I was a little bit undone by 112 steps, but I thought, we can get through this. I laid out all the parts. I identified what they were for. And then I got to work confidently, knowing I could do this. About halfway into this, I looked at the Wieder Verstestein, and I thought, this is not what it's supposed to look like. I looked at the directions. I thought, somehow the directions are backwards. Or if it's possible, they're inside out. Like, this is not the way that that's supposed to be looking. I tried again and again and again. And finally, I just I gave up. Uh, what was supposed to be a very simple bookcase turned out to be curved somehow. Uh, it wasn't going the correct way that it was supposed to work. And I remember just thinking, number one, I'd let just every husband in the world down with my incompetence in trying to make this Wieder Verstenstein work in my apartment complex. But number two, I remember just distinctly sitting on the ground, looking at this mess that I had made, parts. I felt like there were more parts than needed to be there, and there were missing parts that weren't there that were supposed to be there. I looked at the way that this was curved off to the side, and I just remember thinking, what happened? I was so confident. I was so ready. I knew exactly what was going to be going on. What's happened here? How did I get to this place where a bookcase that has no curvature in it whatsoever. It's all just lines that are perpendicular and parallel. It's all just lines. How did it kind of curve off to the side? What's happening? How did we get this way? And I think that that feeling of what is going on around us and how did we get this way, that feeling is where we are at the end of Judges, right? We get to the end and we go, how did we get here? What's happened? We look around at the mess that has been made and we think something surely went wrong. Something surely did not go as according to plan. We've had moments of confidence in the book of Judges. We've looked at some amazing people that have done amazing things, and we've thought, okay, we see some hope. We see some light at the end of the tunnel. We see some salvation. And then we find ourselves in chapter 17, where an entire tribe decides to kidnap a priest who was owned by a man named Micah who had stolen money from his mom to build idols because that makes sense. And then we ran into another priest in chapter 19 who decided it was okay to have multiple wives, and one of his wives committed adultery, and he decided, no, we can fix this, one after her. They went to Gibeah, and while in Gibeah, uh, the men in Gibeah, who were Benjaminites, they decided we want to commit indecent acts of immorality with that priest bring him out 
so that we may sleep with him. And instead of either running away or defending himself and his wife, he decides, no, 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 you can take my concubine instead. And so the men violently abuse her all night long, and, and she is killed. Um, the Levite finds her in the morning at the threshold of his door, says, get up, let's go. And the text isn't very clear whether she was alive at that point or not, but she died somewhere in that uh, night or in the journey back to the Levite's house. And he dismembers her body, sends it into 12 portions in the land of Israel to say to all of Israel, look at what we've become. Look at what's happened to us. We come to the end of Judges and we think, how did we get there? We were were just fine with Samson. He was doing some really dumb things, but how did we get here? The tribes received the pieces of this woman's body and, and gathered together to fight. They said, this is it. This is the, they've crossed the line here. What's been done is not allowed. And so they joined together as one. This is where we left off last week. 400,000 people from Israel fighting against 26,700 men from Benjamin. How did we get into this mess? What's just happened? And, and what should we do now? Well, the answer to how we got into this mess in these final chapters of the book of Judges is really the theme verse of the entire book of Judges. The way we got into this mess is because everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. That's the last verse in the book of Judges. Everyone's just doing whatever they want to do. They have declared what is morally right, what is morally wrong, and this is a picture of life when everybody decides, I can choose what's right or wrong. And this morning, as we finish out the book of Judges, we're going to see three consequences of doing what is right in your own eyes. Three consequences, devastating consequences of what happens when you live life the way you think is right and not according to the way that God has clearly commanded. So let's pray, ask God's blessing on our time, and we'll dive into these consequences together. Father, we thank you for our study thus far in the book of Judges. What a a profound book. What a a blessed time. Even in the low points of this book, we still had an amazing time seeing your glory on display and seeing you as the true judge, the true deliverer, the true hero of this book. So as we come to the end of this book, as it ends so depressingly sad, God, I pray that it would just be a mirror image of our own hearts. We all want autonomy. We all want self-governance. We all want to be able to determine what is right and what is wrong according to our own kingdom rules. We are the king and the queen over our own domain. We get to determine what laws are in effect and which laws don't pertain. We're just like Israel. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from this very dark section. That we would learn about your character. We would learn about our character. And we'd be blown away by the grace of of our deliverer. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The first consequence to living life according to your own morality, doing what is right in your own eyes, we could say it this way, is self-destructive decisions. 
self-destructive decisions. You make self-destructive decisions when you decide what's right or wrong for you. And we're going to see this in chapter 20, verses 18, all the way through the end of the chapter. So we'll pick this up. This is a lengthy portion of scripture. Uh, We'll read it together, and we'll make some comments as we go through. Most of this, by the way, most of this doesn't need any explanation. You you can see it very clearly on display. Depravity, uh, devastating consequences of sin. But we'll, we'll make some notes as we go through it. Verse 18, now the sons of Israel arose. They are unified as one man. Uh, verse 1 of the chapter had told us. They're unified together, 400,000 men against 26,700 men. This is the largest army in Israel's history in the Old Testament. They go up to Bethel and they inquire of God. And they said to him, who shall go up for us first to the battle against the sons of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So they ask God. Number one, we don't see his personal name there in their asking. They ask God, Elohim. Uh, the Lord will see Yahweh later. Then Yahweh says, so God's going to speak in a personal sense. But notice he, he speaks to their question, and their question isn't really the best question to ask. I don't know if you've ever had this in relationships. I'm, I'm sure you have, where somebody asks you a question. Hey, do you think this is a good idea? Or, hey, do you think I should do X uh, this way or this way? I'll give you two options for how I'm going to do X. I'll do it one way or way two. Which way should I do X? And instead of starting with way one or way two, you kind of have to back up and say, wait, why are we even asking about doing this thing to begin with? That's not a good idea. So forget asking these two things. Let's go back to why are we doing this thing to begin with? That's really where they're at. We're we're sold on defeating the Benjaminites, but we just need to know who should go up first. So they're asking questions that don't even really allow for direction or counsel or guidance. Their mind is made up. They are so convinced of their rightness. This is where we live, convinced in our rightness. Oh, I'm right. This is living life when morality is determined by what you think is right or wrong. So they're not asking God whether they should do this. They're asking God what's going to happen when we do this and how should we do what we're doing. And in their asking, when God says Judah should go up first, it's a bookend. Again, these, these are epilogue chapters. We finished our last judge in chapter 16. These are epilogue chapters that bookend and mirror the first two introductions in the book. There's two introductions. There's two outros. And in the introductions, if you remember in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, the people are asking God who should go into the land first and start fighting on our behalf, and God says send Judah first. And so here as well, we have the book and statement, who should go in? And God says, Judah's going to go in first. So the sons of Israel arose in the morning to begin. The sons of Israel arose, and the men of Israel, 20, went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Gibeah. And the sons But the people... The men of Israel encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves in the first. Number one, they lose. And the sons of Israel, verse 23, went up and wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. Now they're asking, Should we? Yes, you should do this. And so the sons of Israel came again. The second day, first day they lost. Second day, verse 25, Benjamin went out against them, 
from Gibeah the second day and fell to the ground again. 18,000 men and the sons of Israel, all these that draw the sword. And then all the sons of Israel, people went up and came to Bethel and wept. They lost day two and they fast. They fasted that day evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now they're becoming contrite in their spirit. They lost day one. They've lost day two. And now they fast, which fasting for half a day doesn't seem like much. But if you've fought a battle that whole day, the day before, this is a lot. You've, you're hungry, you're famished, and you fast. And you say, God, we're going to give you offerings. What is it that you would desire for us to do? They offer peace offerings before the Lord. Verse 27, the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord for the covenant of God in those days. And Phineas of Eliezer, Aaron's son, stood for it to minister in those The parenthetical statement is crucial. The Ark of the Covenant was there. God's presence was there in the land the entire time. They didn't need to go anywhere else. God was there and yet they had forsaken him and turned to idols. But then we also have this note about Phineas. Do you guys remember the name of Phineas? Do you remember what he did? He's famous in Numbers chapter 25 for doing something pretty radical. He goes around in the camp in Israel. Israel was just parting this huge, massive orgy. And he goes into the camp, and he says, anybody who is unfaithful, anybody who is committing acts of immorality, they are violating God's law. And he goes into a where two people are committing immorality, and he takes a spear and he kills both of them while they are in the act of immorality. That's Phineas. But that tells us not only do we have a God who's trying to direct them, trying to say, hey, go towards God. You need God. You don't need to have your own wisdom. God's there to give you counsel. But you also have a chronological picture of when this is happening. We would think this is happening after Samson. This is happening a long time later. But this is telling us this is happening right around the time of Joshua's death. So this goes all the way back at the beginning of Judges chronologically. This is how evil Israel was the entirety of this book. So there's a theological clue that God, in spite of all of the horrific sin going on, God's still making himself available. There's also a chronological clue here. And so in this section, the sons of Israel inquire. Verse 28, they say, go again to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? Should we stop now? God, is this even something that you desire us to do? Now they're asking the right question. And God says, go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Day three, battle three, you'll gain victory. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. The sons of Israel went up against the sons of Benjamin on the third day. They arrayed themselves against Gibeah as other times. The sons of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And they began to strike and kill some of the people as at other times on the highways, one which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the field, about 30 men of Israel, the sons of Benjamin said, they are struck before us as the first. They, they, we've, we've destroyed them. We're going to get them again. But the sons of Israel said, let us flee that we may draw them away from the city to the highways. We're going to lie in ambush there and destroy them. Then all the men of Israel rose from their place and arrayed themselves at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel in ambush broke out of their place, even at Marageba, 
When 10,000 choice men from all Israel came against Gibeah, the battle became fierce, but Benjamin did not know the disaster was close to them. And the Lord struck Benjamin before Israel so that the sons of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, all who draw the sword. So we've got 600 left. So the sons of Benjamin saw that they were defeated when the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. The men in ambush hurried and they rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush also deployed and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed sign between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise from the city. That's very similar to the language that's used in Sodom and Gomorrah. When Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, a great cloud of smoke. And this is similar to Sodom and Gomorrah as what had happened in chapter 19. But when the cloud uh, began to rise from the city, verse 40, in a column of smoke, Benjamin looked behind them and behold, the whole city was going up in smoke to heaven. And the men of Israel turned and saw the men of Benjamin were terrified, for they saw that disaster was close to them. Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel toward the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, while those who came out of the cities destroyed them in the midst of them. They surrounded Benjamin, pursued them without rest, trod them down opposite Gibeah toward the east. Thus, 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were valiant warriors. The rest turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, but they caught 5,000 of them on the highways. They overtook them at, at Gidom and killed 2,000 of them. So all the, of Benjamin who fell that day were 25,000 men who draw the sword. All these men were valiant warriors. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, and they remained at the rock of Ramon four months. The men of Israel then turned back against the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city with the cattle and all that they found. They also set on fire all the cities which they found. Just when you begin to think, okay, this is somewhat just, right? There's some perfect justice being meted out. You see this, uh, cattle being destroyed, everything that was inhabiting the city being destroyed. You got women and children being destroyed. This is not perfect justice, but this is exactly what happens when you do what's right in your own eyes. You bring destruction upon yourself, destruction upon the people around you. This isn't justice. This is revenge. This is not demanding one eye, but two eyes in revenge for every one lost. This is turned into vindictiveness. So being right in your own eyes causes self-destructive decision-making. And notice how they did it. Notice what they did. They all the while committing idolatry, not obeying the Lord's commands to go into the land and let the people leave and drive them out, all the while harboring their own sinful choices, they have said, yes, but this sin has crossed the line. They are determining what's right or wrong, what's okay and what's not okay. This sin of idolatry and this sin of not trusting God and this sin of not obeying Him, this is okay. We'll, we'll coddle this, we'll be okay with this, but that sin's crossed the line. And they gather together, and they start to fight against those who committed that sin. Now, it's a terrible sin, what the men of Gibeah did. But the way that these Israelites go about it is not right. And it's a very interesting thing to note for us, because I think we do the exact same thing. When you live life as the determiner of what is right and wrong, you are doing what's right in your own eyes, 
then you believe there are certain things that God's opposed to and there are certain things that will be okay. I can live in this. Now, God is opposed to immorality, yes. But God's also opposed to your brand of morality that says, well, I have determined this is what I need to do to make God happy. God's not impressed by that. Like these tribes, they say, this is okay, but that's wrong, and we're going to say that's wrong. And they feel good about themselves when they say that's wrong. We know that's wrong. But only that sin, why would they tolerate everything else? But they won't tolerate that sin. It's not enough to identify specific sins and say, well, that specific sin's wrong, but these ones are okay. We can be just like Israel in our culture today. Two huge hot-button issues. Is same-sex marriage okay? Is abortion okay? Uh, We can look at those, and we can say, well, biblically, same-sex marriage is not okay, and abortion is not okay. And we would be right in saying that those things go against God's law. But I think that we struggle sometimes to feel good and justified in our own morality when we can simply say, we know what's right or wrong. Those things are not okay, and we feel like we are okay. It's not good enough to call those things bad in in order to make ourselves good. Just identifying what's wrong and what's right does not make you righteous. Being opposed to some specific sin doesn't make you righteous. There is a fate that's worse than same-sex marriage or the sin of abortion. And that is the fate of not believing in and loving Jesus Christ. So I think we struggle with this as well. To say, well, at least we're not doing that. And we know that that's wrong. That doesn't make us any better. Just to simply know. The Israelites were determining what's too far, what's tolerable. And as we come to the end of chapter 20, it's a crazy thing when we see complete faithlessness and we think, man, let's get back to Samson. At least he had faith. Like he's a better picture of faith than these people. But this is exactly what doing what is right in your own eyes looks like. Number two, the second consequence of doing what is right in your own eyes is self-pitying regret. Self-pitying regret. Just Being sorry for yourself, feeling sorry for yourself because you realize that your self-destructive decisions have made huge consequences in your life. This is chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mitzpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. Those men are evil. Nobody give them your daughter in marriage. So the people came to Bethel, and they sat there before God until evening and lifted up their voices, and they wept bitterly. They said, Why, O Lord, God of Israel... Has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? Benjamin's down to just a couple hundred people. 600 people, this has serious implications for the furthering of that tribe, which has serious implications for the furthering of Israel, which has serious implications for the furthering of God's promise to Israel. God said not one of these tribes is going to be lost. And so if Benjamin loses all of its members and has no women to be able to marry these 600 men, we've lost an entire tribe. These Israelites don't meet up. They've gone way too far. They should have just killed the people that did what was wrong in chapter 19, but instead they wiped out almost an entire tribe. And now they have this huge problem, especially with saying we're never going to give a daughter to them, not one of our daughters. 600 surviving surviving men are not going to get their daughters, so they've effectively exterminated an entire tribe. And notice what they say, verse 3. Why is this happening, God? God, why is this happening? 
know if you've ever been in that situation. You've made terrible decisions. You see the mess that's going on around you because of your terrible decisions. And you're lying in the wake of all of your disobedience. And you say, God, why is this happening? Woe is me. Why is this happening? I think the reason we do that is it's a lot easier to just ask God why than it is to genuinely reflect and to ask him to forgive us for our disobedience. We say, God, why? It's easier to pray and question God than to engage in genuine self-reflection. So they say, why? They know exactly why. They were the reason why. But they say, God, why? It came about, verse 4, the next day, that the people arose early, they built an altar there, they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Then, they're still going to do things that are right in their own eyes. They haven't learned from their mistakes. They say, who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? They had taken a great oath concerning him that whoever did not come up to the Lord at Mitzpah, saying he should surely be put to death. So what they had said was, we're all going to gather together and fight Benjamin. And anybody who doesn't join us in this fight, we're going to kill them too. That was the vow that they had made. So they really made two vows. Number one, we're not giving any of our daughters to Benjamin. And number two, we're killing anybody that doesn't come to help us fight Benjamin. Those are the two vows. Those two are going to come into play here. So, they say, what are we going to do here? We've got this tribe. Uh, the sons of Israel were sorry for their brother, verse 6. They said, one tribe is off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives? For them? Since we've sworn by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage. And they're realizing we, we've made these vows. We don't know how to bring about uh, a restoration of this tribe because we made a vow that nobody's going to give a daughter to them. 600 Benjamite Men, no women. I've heard of the um, musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, right? This is 600 brides for 600 brothers. How are we going to make this happen? They have self-pity. Oh, woe is us. Instead of saying, no, this is what we get for doing what's right in our own eyes. This is what we get. The third consequence of living in such a way that you determine your own morality, not only is it self-destructive decisions, lead to self-pity and regret. Oh, woe is me because of what's happened. No, no, you made what's happened to you happen to you. Number three, the third consequence is self-governing morality. Self-governing morality. You just call the shots. You just call the shots. You determine morality. You determine what's right. You determine what's wrong. Verse eight. So they said, okay, what one is there of the tribes of Israel who didn't come up to the Lord at Mitzvah? And behold, no one had to come up from the camp of Jabesh Gilead. So they say, okay, Jabesh Gilead did not join us to fight Benjamin. They deserve to be killed, according to their own, doing what's right in their own eyes. Verse 9, for when the people were numbered, behold, one of them, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. And the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors and commanded them, saying, go and strike the inhabitants of with the edge of the sword. Women and little ones. So we're going to go kill them like we promised to do, but we're going to keep Anybody in that tribe who's a virgin, we're going to keep them alive and make them be married to the Benjamites. So, verse 12, or verse 11, this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who has lain with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young persons who had known a man by lying with him and sent them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Again, we have gone from bad to worse 
Notice where we began. There was one woman who was severely abused and killed, and now these men who formed an army to go attack the people that did that are saying, let's go into this tribe and in this camp and kill all of them, women and children. This is what doing what is right in your own eyes looks like. Then the whole congregation sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time and they gave them the women whom they had kept alive from the women of Jabesh Gilead. Yet they were not enough. I don't do math very well, but I know 400 doesn't 600. So we still are short. We still are short. So, verse 15, the people were sad. Again, they're sorry for Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. That's a very interesting verse because they were the ones that did it. And so a lot of commentators say this is from their lips. Oh, God, why did you do this? They're blaming God instead of saying, no, this was, this is our doing. How far we have fallen. An assembly which gathered to do justice for a single raped and murdered woman now end up planning and promoting the murder of a whole town, women and children, abducting girls from the town and forcing them to marry these other men. This is what sin looks like. This is the end of sin. So, verse 16, the elders of the congregation said, well, we're still short. What should we do for the wives who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? They said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin so that the tribe would not be blotted out. But we can't give them one of the, our wives. We've sworn. We can't give them one of our wives. For the sons of Israel had sworn, saying, Cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So we've already stolen women from Jabesh Gilead, but that's done. Who, who do we give now? So they said, Feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of Labona. And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie and wait in the vineyards and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, you shall come out of the vineyards, each of you, and you shall take a wife, catch the daughters of Shiloh, and go into the land of Benjamin. So they say, okay, we aren't allowed to give our daughters in marriage to Benjamin. But here's how we'll make this work. We'll let you kidnap our daughters. This This is what morality, defined by you, and we have zero moral whatsoever, This is what morality looks like on display when every man is doing what's right in their own eyes. Well, we made a vow, and we have to keep that vow. We say here a lot, sin makes you stupid, right? Sin makes you do stupid things. Look at the stupidity of sin on display here. These people say, we cannot break our vow. We have to uphold that. We have to righteously live that vow out. But let's go kidnap people. Like The same person who says, we can't do this, says, but we can totally do this. We see this all over the Bible, right? You remember uh, King Herod with John the Baptist? King Herod loves John the Baptist. He's imprisoned him only because of his wife Herodias, and Herodias designs a way for Herod to get his head chopped off, and, and King Herod makes a vow to Herodias' daughter. Uh, whatever you want, ask of me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And she says, well, I want the, the head of John the Baptist on a, on a silver platter. And instead of saying, time out, number one, I'm drunk, number two, there's a lot of wickedness happening here, and number three, I just made a stupid vow to you. I literally just said to you, you can have whatever you want from my kingdom and I'll give it to you. Shouldn't have done that. Time out, let's rewind, 
go back to the beginning. We're not killing John the Baptist. Instead of doing that, the Bible specifically says that because of his dinner guests around him and not wanting to break his word, he says, okay, kill John the Baptist. So we're, we're okay murdering a man of God, but we're not okay breaking a, a, a rash promise. The Pharisees do the same thing. You remember the, the night or the morning that Jesus is going to be crucified on Good Friday, that morning, they go in to talk to Pilate, and as they're going in to talk to Pilate to give him false witnesses, false testimony, and condemn Jesus to die, to murder an innocent man, they walk up as close as they can get to the Gentile court, and then they say, well, we can't go any further. We can't step foot on a Gentile court because we need to be clean so that we can take Passover in a clean way. Oh, so we're fine murdering, lying, false testimony, false witnesses, paying people off, but we can't take we can't step foot into this Gentile court. This is the stupidity of sin. And so here they say, well, we can't break a vow, so we'll just have our women be kidnapped. And what is this dance that's happening? What is happening? Is this Old Testament e-harmony? Is this singles ministry in the Old Testament? What is going on that women just show up and dance? This is some like Sadie Hawkins for Israelite people. They're going out, they're dancing, and the men can just jump in and take one. I, I don't, this, this is weird to me. This is just weird. This is more weird and funny than it is sad, though there's sadness in it. This is just really weird to me. So they dance. Verse 22, the people, as they're making this ridiculous idea, well, we'll, we'll let them be kidnapped. Well, surely one of the dads of the kidnapped girls is going to say, not my girl, like time out. I didn't, I didn't allow that. Verse 22, it shall come about, they, they've already thought of this, when the fathers of the brothers come to complain to us, that we shall say to them, give them to us voluntarily, because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them to us, else you would now be guilty. So somebody comes up and says, excuse me, don't kidnap my, my daughter. You, you can say, well, number one, it's okay, because you didn't give her to Benjamin, so you're not breaking your vow. And if you did give her to ben Benjamin, which we need to do because Benjamin's about to die, if you did, you'd be guilty. So basically, stop talking. Like, don't say anything. Go home. You'll be fine. The sons of Benjamin did so, verse 23. And they took wives according to their number from those who danced, whom they carried away. They carry them. I mean, there's no, like, cute proposal. There's no, can we all talk? They just jump in, pick them up, run away with them. And they went and they returned to their inheritance. They rebuilt cities and they lived in them. There is so much that has happened in the middle of verse 23. They pick them up, they run away with them, period, space, where a lot of stuff is going on because it just then says, and they rebuilt everything. Verse 24, the sons of Israel departed from there. At that time, every man went to his tribe, his family. Each one of them went out from there to his own inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So we've got all of the tribes back together again. Benjamin's always going to be the smallest, but it's good that Benjamin didn't die. Saul from the Old Testament and Saul slash Paul from the New Testament, they're both from Benjamin. So it's good to have Benjamin alive. We need them alive. But that's how the book ends. But the author of Judges saying, this is exactly what life looks like if you live it according to your own sense of morality. So we see self-destructive decisions, that just start wrecking your life. And then you become sad about it, self-pitying regret. Oh, I shouldn't have done this. But you don't take ownership and right the wrongs. And then you just continue in your self-governing morality. What, is, what do we do with this? What does all of this mean? 
Daniel Block said, in all of the scriptures, Judges chapter 21 is the strangest chapter. This is a weird chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that these verses are given to us as warnings and instructions. Warnings and instructions. So as we wrap up this section of scripture, we're going to do one more sermon on the book of Judges next week to kind of wrap up all of Judges. But as we finish out this chapter, I think that there are three very important lessons, warnings that the author of Judges is wanting to communicate with us today. Warning number one, sin is a very slippery slope. Sin is a very slippery slope. If you would have asked the priest who took to himself a concubine, didn't look too bad because all the other pagan nations were doing it, and I'll be faithful to that concubine. He even goes after her when she's committed adultery against him. I still want her to be my wife. He looks like a very faithful, nice man. So it doesn't look too bad to take a, a second wife in that time. He takes a second wife, and as he does that, his one sin starts snowballing and snowballing and snowballing, just a rock going down, picking up all this moss and all this grass and all this stuff until all of a sudden you have this huge, huge boulder of sin that wrecks devastating consequences in Israel. If you would have asked the Levite right before he's about to take that concubine and you're to say, can I show you a time capsule of where he's headed? Let me show you. You're going to end up losing her to a violent act of immorality, disgusting, evil, wicked act, and then Israel's going to show up to kill that tribe that did that, and they're going to utterly decimate that tribe, almost exterminate completely. Israel's going to be at a civil war, and because they're almost going to exterminate it, that means they're going to have to go into Jabesh Gilead and kill all those people, men, women, and children, steal 400 virgins, and then they're going to have to go in and kidnap 200 other women all because of your decision today. What do you think the Levite would have said? I think the Levite would have said, that's not going to happen. How many times have we seen, we know what the Bible says about where sin's going to go, and we look at sin and we go, oh, that, but it's not going to happen to me. That happens to other, but that's, that's not going to happen to me. And then if you would have said, no, it will happen to you, I think he would have said, if you can prove it's going to happen to me, and I believe that and I take that at face value, this sin is not worth it. It's not worth it. Sin is a slippery, slippery slope. Daniel Block says again, no other book in the Old Testament offers the modern church as telling a mirror as this book. This book is a wake-up call for dying churches stuck in their own selfish pursuits instead of heeding the call of a truly godly leader and letting Jesus Christ be Lord of the church. Everywhere, congregations and their leaders do whatever is right in their own eyes, and it leads to devastating consequences. Israel became Israel's own worst enemy. So, warnings and instructions. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. The warning, sin is a slippery slope. The instruction, repent. Today, repent. Turn to the word. Don't let your own sense of morality be what guides you. Let God's sense of morality be what guides you. Let God's character be what guides you. Be in this book day and night. 
trust him, even when you don't feel like the consequence of sin that he says is going to happen is going to happen. Trust by faith. Sin is a slippery slope. Today, today, this very day, stop what sin you're in and get out before it continues to roll and escalate and you're trying as hard as you can and you just keep on going downhill. Sin is a slippery slope. Number two, the second warning, sin has devastating consequences. Devastating consequences. The men who did the wicked act in chapter 19, that was evil and wicked and their sin had devastating consequences because they were killed along with everyone in their village and almost everyone Jabesh Gilead, because of their consequences, their, their sinful, devastating choices. One act of sin brought devastation that was almost irreparable. You almost could not come back from what this had done. Sin is devastating in its consequences. Brothers and sisters, we should be terrified of sin. We should hate it, and we should be scared of it and not want to live in it. Sin has devastating consequences. But number three, the instruction to us today, this morning, is that God, number three, God is a gracious deliverer. God's a gracious deliverer. The sense of that word deliver. That's what a judge did. They delivered the Israelites. It's a miracle that we come to the end of Judges and there are 12 tribes still there. It's a miracle. It's like, as a parent, my, my biggest goal when we go anywhere in public is just to make sure I have the same number of kids in my car as when I got there and they're the same kids that I had in the car when I got there. So I just look back, are we all here and are you all the same? If so, we had a great time. <laughs> if not, we've got problems. That's, I get to the end of this, and I look, look in the rear mirror, and I see we, we still have everybody. Everybody's still here. That's amazing considering when Sodom and Gomorrah did exactly what Israel did in chapter 19. Remember, Judges 19 is identical to Genesis 19. When Sodom and Gomorrah did that, what happened to them? Devastated, destroyed, utterly destroyed from the face of the earth. Israel is given another chance. There were times in this book that I thought we would lose a tribe for good, especially here at the end. We've completely lost Benjamin. One commentator says it this way, by Israel's actions, the tribe of Benjamin was preserved, but the Israelites had tackled the problem in a cocky, conceited, high-handed way. How estranged from the Lord's service Israel had become. How little did it live by his light. It's a miracle that anything came of this people, that any form of justice was practiced, and that the fellowship of the tribes was preserved. There is no other explanation for this miracle than that God in his grace wished to dwell in the midst of that people in spite of their sin. That's why that parenthetical statement is amazing when it says that the was there and Phineas is still working there. God was dwelling in the midst of a wicked, sinful people. And that's exactly what God the Father did when he sent Jesus to tabernacle with us, to be with us, to show us who the Father is, to die on a cross, to bring us home to glory, to rise from the dead, conquering sin and death. So the book of Judges really ends with a miracle. How after this entire book, these three chapters specifically, but this whole book, how can Israel still be around? It can only be because God is a kind God and he never forsook them. So while this book, 
has showed us amazing salvation brought about by the judges and deliverers that God raised up. This book is even more about the amazing Savior, the amazing Deliverer, the amazing Father that we serve that preserves His people, who redeems His people, even in the midst of their evil and their wickedness. If you've been redeemed by Jesus Christ and you know the salvation that He offers to you through Christ, I hope that you have seen yourself in Israel in this book. And then I hope that it's helped you to run to Christ, to see yourself in the finished work that Christ has lived out on the cross from the empty tomb to offer you a promise that no matter how far you go, no matter how far you fall, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he calls you every moment, turn back to me where there will be mercy and grace for those who would seek it. Father, we thank you for this amazing book and our time in it. And we thank you for the warnings and promises that we saw even this morning. The gracious warnings that you would warn us yet again. Sin just is a slippery slope. One moment you are playing with it and coddling sin. And the next moment you are looking around you saying, how did we get here? What's happened? Sin is devastating, and its consequences are painful. And sometimes we have to live with those consequences, and those consequences sometimes can never be taken away. But by your grace, our sin can be. And the penalty of sin can be removed by Jesus bearing that penalty in our place on our behalf. So, Father, I pray that we would cling to Christ, even now as we sing, a friend for sinners a deliverer beyond every judge in the book of Judges who offers us amazing grace as we cling to him. Jesus, friend of sinners.